Welcome. We continue with our study of Yaakov. Yaakov's now is presently residing, living in, with Ravan, and the uh, story continues. At the end of the previous chapter, we were told that God intervened on behalf of Leah, who very quickly has four children. And she names the four children. The significance of the names, uh, names are always significant in a variety of ways, but in this particular case, God's involvement here, the Torah tells us, was because God saw that Leah was snua. You can translate that as hated or unbeloved, less loved. In any event, the word snua is a strong term. And um, so she has four children and the names reflect her relationship with, her, with, with Yaakov. We spoke about that last week. But the point is that after the, the first three names are explicitly about Yaakov. I'm hated, uh, I, I suffer, perhaps my husband will join me, the baby, son number three. When it comes to son number four, to uh, Yehuda, she says, Hashem. this time I express my gratitude to God, doesn't mention her husband, and it would appear from the name that she feels that somehow she has achieved a kind of parity. That at this point, at least, she's a full-fledged member of Yaakov's family in the sense that she's the mother of four of his children and she's the mother of his only children. So the fact that she doesn't say, now this, now he's going to join me, whatever, means that she feels that she's uh, reached a kind of equality. Uh, and then, Hatamo Bilebet, she stops having children because God's intervention in the first place was to uh, was to remove the snua uh, label from her. Apparently, it's been removed. So therefore, since God's intervention was needed for a particular purpose, and that purpose is no longer relevant. So Vatamo Bilebet, that's where we stopped last week, the end of chapter 29. In chapter 30 now, the Torah continues to tell us that Rachel saw she had not born children for Yaakov, and Rachel became jealous of her sister. Only at this point is she jealous because now at this point, her sister, sibling rival sister, is actually sees herself as a, as, as a full member of the family. So Rachel was upset and jealous, but jealousy is a very strong emotion. It's a strong emotion here, and it's a strong emotion later in the Chumash as well, in the story of Joseph, Rachel's son Joseph, and the other uh, children of Yaakov. And there it says, Vayikanu Boechav, in chapter 37, when Joseph tells the dreams to his brothers, Vayikanu Boechav, the brothers were jealous of him, and that leads, as we know, to the attempted murder of their brother Joseph. At the end of the day, he's, he's taken into slavery into Egypt, but the initial intention was to kill him. So kill is a very powerful, one might add a dangerous emotion. So Rachel was jealous. She says to Yaakov, give me children. If not, I will die. There's a kind of threat or I will die. I'll die out of despair. Some kind of a threat here, it sounds like, or it's, you know, the situation is so dire. And then she says, So first of all, the word hava, we have already seen, is typically a negative word in the book of Breshit in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. It's very negative. 
But the, the demand is actually interesting. What does she have in mind when she says So the Ramban actually says that, and he raises this question. The Ramban says, presumably what it means is pray for me. Pray that I should have children. And um, the Ramban then asks the question, if that be the case, that it means pray for me, then we don't understand the next verse. Yaakov got angry at Rachel. Am I God? Who has prevented you from having children? What's the anger? If she's simply saying, pray for me, you're not God, you're praying to God. What is the, what is the difficulty? So the Ramban basically says more or less what I'm going to suggest. And that is that does not mean prayer per se, because in prayer, there are no guarantees. Prayer is what we hope for. But Havali Banim delivered the children suggests that what she's saying is, if you want it to happen, you have the power to make it happen. Which suggests a kind of uh, thinking about Yaakov, at least, as capable of, if God is in fact preventing it, capable of changing God's mind, capable of extracting blessings from God, whether or not it is God's intention. The, the belief that people can, that people can in fact um, control, control God, that's what Rachel seems to be saying, if you, if you wanted it, it would happen. And one could say here that whether Rachel int intends this or not, we the reader remember that when it comes we might say the following, Yaakov, I hear you're pretty good at stealing blessings. How about stealing one for me? Right? The blessing that Yaakov takes, as, as his father Isaac said, What about my blessing, says Esau? I gave you a blessing away. So he took someone else's blessing. So Rachel says, listen, if you're good at manipulating God, manipulate God for me. And I would add to this uh, statement, now, we have to remember that later in this uh, story, uh, Yaakov does manipulate uh, births. The whole business at the end, chapter 30, 30, end of chapter 30, 31 there with the manipulation with the rods, with the troughs, with the speckled and the spotted animals. We do see Yaakov energetically, I would add, uh, manipulating the births so that the better animals uh, accrue to Yaakov as opposed to Lavan. But in any event, what Rachel is suggesting here, she believes that Yaakov, for whatever reason, either Yaakov himself or people in general, if they will it, it can happen. And that's the hover. Hover we him, and then the threat. And not, otherwise I will die. You have to do it. I'm desperate. And here we have Yaakov's response, which is an interesting response. Yaakov says, but first of all, he gets angry. That itself is interesting that he gets angry. He gets angry and he says, what am I God who has prevented you from having children? He gets angry at him. So just to reflect a moment about the anger, I think I had mentioned when we saw some of the previous chapters that when, ya when Yaakov runs off to his uncle, for two different reasons. One is to save himself from Asa who threatens to kill him. And the second reason is to get a wife. 
a wife from his mother's family. And we, we talked about that and that running away is to escape Asa fits in very well with seeing going into exile as punishment, having harmed, hurt Asa, tricked his father, etc. Whereas running away to find a wife has to do with the, with the, with the, with the covenantal blessing. What's interesting is I pointed out that when Yitzchak talks about leaving home and going to the uncle, and when Rivka talks about it, they use different terms for the place in which Robin is found. When Yitzchak says it in the beginning of chapter 28, he talks about Aram. Aram. Robin is the Arami. He talks about Aram. Go to Aram. That's where Abraham had sent his servants, right? Aram Narayim. But when Rivka talks about running away, she's, she used a different word, Haran. Right? And when Rivka in chapter 27 describes the place, it's Haran. And there, what I pointed out is, if you look at those verses, the end of chapter 27, you see something very interesting, that when Rivka talks about running away to escape Esau, she talks about escaping Esau's anger. And she, there were several terms for anger in chapter 27. One is, um, that's in verse number 44 of chapter 27. And then you add, Af is another word for anger, until your brother's anger uh, abates, right? And then, and she had said in the beginning, go and run away. Go to Charon. We know in the Torah, often the expression Charon Af. Right. So basically, what you're talking about is when Rifta speaks about, describes the place, we might say a place of anger. That's not true when Yitzhak describes it. He calls it Aram. So Haran is related to the word Haran. It's a place of anger. And in fact, we have right here in chapter 30, Yaakov gets angry. He gets angry at Rachel. I would point out that Yaakov later also gets angry at, uh, at Lavan. When Lavan chases after him, that's uh, many years later, after 20 years of servitude, he chases after him, he, he searches Yaakov's belongings, and Yaakov got angry, and he quarreled with Lavan. But it took him 20 years. But it didn't take him very long to get angry at his, uh, at his, at his beloved wife. So it's a place of anger. Now, where anger comes from is a very wonderful question. And I think one of the sources of anger in general, including the Torah, but in general, is a sense that someone has that I am deserving of something that I am not getting. I think that's what motivates the snake, actually. In our little course we just finished, the Snake in the Garden, which maybe we'll continue later in the spring, who knows? But I was arguing for the position that what motivates this nachash is the sense that why is this human being getting all this, these benefits that I don't get? Um, so the anger is coming from a place of one feels that one deserves something. Now, it could be that one does, in fact, deserve it, in which case one might call that justifiable anger. Whether anger is a bad quality, though, to have in general is a good question, even if it's justified. It may take a toll on the, on the person who gets angry. But it comes from a place where people feel 
they deserve more than they have. The, the one who feels this way, you know, in spades, of course, is Lavan himself. As he says later on, after Yaakov runs away, he says to Yaakov, look, he says, he can't find the trophim that Rachel stole, but he says to Yaakov, it's all mine, he says. Everything you have is mine. Yaakov didn't manipulate his flock. So there's a sense of Laban, of course, that it's all his. Everything is his. He's deserving and, and no one else is. They're all there to serve his needs. That's Laban. So we understand why it's a place of anger. But the point is, Yaakov buys into, my point about Yaakov is, buying into this place. The significance here is, the point is, and the danger is that Yaakov could buy into Lavan in a very deep way. We know he himself is a manipulator to start with. Story with his brother, then to sell the birthright, buys the birthright, trick his father and all that. So he, is, he has that, those qualities within him. And here we have the anger. It's interesting that Rashi, quoting a Midrash, faults Yaakov for the anger. So what are you angry? This is the way you treat a suffering person? That, that's the Medris, the Rashi, Rashi quotes it. I would add to this that, you know, first of all, Yaakov saying, I instead of God is interesting, given Yaakov's background, but there's something else to take into account here in the story. And that is, Rachel had said, um, give me children or else I'll die. Now in point of fact, Yaakov's response over here is look, can I take the place of God? Ramban takes it as, you misunderstand the nature of prayer. I can't force God's hand. So that's the Ramban's explanation. But Rashi faults Jacob in any event, says Yaakov mis misspeaks here. You don't speak this way to this beloved wife um, who has been displaced not through her own fault by, by, her, by her father. Um, and what's interesting to note here is that in the, at the end of the day, Rachel does die, actually. She dies early on, and she dies having, having she dies giving birth. She dies giving birth, and she dies giving birth. I'm jumping the gun here, but I think it's pretty clear in the Chumash when one reads it with, with no, no apologies and no agendas that Rachel dies because for a reason, because Jacob had said, whoever took these trophim, these idols, Rachel steals her father's idols, trophim, and Lovin says, you stole my idols. Jacob said, I didn't steal the idols. Whoever took them should die. Once again, taking no responsibility for whoever did it, because if someone did do it, it's a member of Yaakov's family. Since he's the patriarch, he does bear some responsibility. He doesn't seem to see it that way. So she took the trophim, and the trophim, I believe, in the Chumash and beyond, are not just a god, but a fertility god. She takes the trophim to have a child, and therefore she has a child, but she dies in childbirth. And one can raise the question, I'll raise it now, we'll get to it hopefully at some point in the future. What if Yaakov had behaved differently? What if Yaakov had behaved differently? What if she didn't have to steal the trophim? What if there were another way? to talk things out, to work things out. So the end of the day, this statement comes back to haunt us, which is, BMI and mate, give me a child or else I'll die, says Yaakov, and Rashi would say, I got four kids. 
obviously you have a problem. So deal with your problems. What am I? God, have I prevented you from having children? After he's just the father, his fourth child. So one can read it as, and I think one can read it as, it's not my problem, dear. You have a problem, you deal. The Rabban typically tries to put a nice face on it, but at the end of the day, Rashi's, I think, on point here, saying that there's something wrong with, in the way Yaakov talks, and later as well. Whoever took the trophim should die is not the right response. Is that if someone took it, we are responsible. We'll, we'll, we'll encounter this later. It's clear from the Chumash that that is actually a good reading of, of, of the Torah. In any event, that's what Yaakov says here. What am, am I God? Am I God who has prevented you from having children? So Rachel then comes back to Yaakov in the next pasuk in verse number three. He says, here's my Amar, my servant Bilah, go to her. She will give birth on my knees. The knees, we have in English the same expression, to raise someone on, my, on, on your knee. In fact, the word for knee, I believe in Latin is genus or progeny, right? Progeny. Um, so it means there'll be my, she will have a child, but it'll be my child as well. even also. So it means, here's my idea. I'll give you my shifcha, my oma, and she'll be your wife. And uh, she'll have a child, and it'll also be my child. That was similar to the advice, to the suggestion that Sarah gave to Abraham. We know that didn't work out too well. But over here, uh, Rachel makes the same suggestion to Yaakov. It's interesting to note, and that's what happens. It is vatitein lo. So she gave Bilah to Yaakov Isha. Here it calls her Isha, a wife. Here it describes Bilah as wife. Bilah and Zilpah are described in different ways in the Chumash. But here in this verse, she gives her to Yaakov as a wife. Yaakov went to her. And Bilah bore a son for Yaakov. And Rachel says, God has judged me. And God also has heard my voice. And God has granted me a son. So she names her son Don. Notice in the giving of the name, what she says, God has given me a son. So even though Bila is the Isha, is the wife of Yaakov, but the child that's born, Rachel sees as hers only or additionally as her son. And she says, God has judgment, donani Elohim. Judgment for what is not clear, maybe for the jealousy. God has heard my, my voice. Even though we have no affirmation in the text of her praying, but it was a prayer. It was a wish. It was a hope. It was an aspiration. God has heard it. God has granted me a son. So the son, first son born to Bila and Rachel's son, as it were, is named Don. Now, let me just comment briefly on this and I'll stop and take some comments or questions. The name Don is an important name because the word Don does figure in the covenantal blessing to Abraham. 
גם את הגוי אשר יעבוד הוא דון אנוכי ואחרי כן יצאו ברכוש גדול. In the covenant given to Abraham which talks about three generations of suffering and then the fourth generation which that returns to the land so there of course the word don figures prominently in chapter 15 also in chapter 14 Abraham chases adversaries unto don we had studied how 14 and 15 are linked And of course, Leah also has a child with the name Don. Her seventh child, that's a, a girl, her name is Dina. Dina. So we have Don and Dina in the story here. So it carries with it a significance. Maybe we'll come back to this. Um, so yes, so we have over here, so this is Rachel's first child. Let's just get to the second child. Again, Bilha. Batar od Batele Bilha. Shifchat Rachel ben Sheni Yaakov. Child number two was born to Bila. Batoma Rachel. Naftulei Elohim niftalti imachoti gam yochoti. Batikra Shemo Naftali. So this is a difficult word, Naftali. And the commentaries are trying to figure out what Naftali means. Some connect it to the word Petil, something that you wind around. But it, the text, the sense of it is, uh, I have... Here they translate a faithful, a faithful uh, contest, a contest, a struggle, I would say. Two people are struggling, grabbing onto each other. I have struggled with my sister, but I have prevailed. And she named the second child Naftali. So the first child was about her God judging her favorably. Or God responding to our cries after judgment. And the second one, she describes the struggle with her sister in very harsh, very striking terms. I have struggled and I have prevailed. Now, of course, when you read this description of Rachel, or it's a self-description, of course, what jumps to mind immediately, obviously, is the story of Jacob wrestling with this mysterious ish, angel, person, divine being. And there, the struggle, he struggles, he wrestles, he's, he's wounded. But, you have wrestled, you have struggled with human and divine. You have prevailed. In fact, the word appears twice in that story. First, it said that the divine being could not overcome Jacob, could not defeat him totally. He wounds him, but doesn't fully defeat him. And then later, you have prevailed, which actually is interesting. It marks Rachel, among other things, as a Jacob figure. Rachel is a Yaakov figure. And that's the one he first meets and loves. It's not surprising. The one who picks this up, actually, and runs with it is the prophet Yirmiyahu. And the Haftorah that we read on Rosh Hashanah, which talks about Rachel refusing to forget her children. But Batma'ain, she, she refuses to forget, which of course is exactly the language of Jacob, refusing to give up on his son Joseph. But here already you have the, the kernels of it are found already in the Chumash. And again, the name is given by Rachel. So it means that Rachel sees herself as the mother of the second child. So now we have two children born to Bilhah, Don and Naphtali, but Rachel sees them as her children. And I will add, and this is a very important point, I think, uh, 
just a little, it's more complex than it appears on the surface. Unlike the story of Abraham and Sarah, where that, uh, at the end of the day, didn't work out well for Sarah. At the end of the day, Yishmael is not Sarah's child. Yishmael is Abraham's child in a sense, and certainly Hagar's child. In the case over here, Don and Naftali are considered to be Rachel's children in a sense. They're members of the family. Jacob has 12 sons. He blesses all 12. In fact, the blessing of Don is very striking in chapter 49. Don, Yadin Amo, Don will, will judge his people. Kiachad Shivtei Yisrael is one of the tribes of Israel. So the commentaries explain is one of the tribes of Israel, not less than any other tribe. Don and Naphtali are part of, we talk about the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. Don and Naphtali are among the 12, as are Asher and God, even though their mothers are not neither Rachel nor Leah. Doesn't matter. But the children, in fact, are part of the 12 tribes. And I think we can say that if we want to understand why it worked here and didn't work there, Clearly, it doesn't work there because at least as Sarah sees it, and she says it in no uncertain terms, I mean, my maidservant looks down upon me, treats me with little respect, and Sarah says to Abraham, and the, the one I blame is actually you, because if you treat me with respect, it would never happen. So, you know, the dog looks like, looks like his master. The way you treat me in Mitzrayim and beyond, you know, uh, that's picked up by others around me, and therefore I have cow. I'm of low esteem in her eyes, and God shall judge between us, me and you, Abraham. That's not true in the case of Yaakov and Rachel. I, 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 I do make the claim that Yaakov's treatment of Rachel was problematic in the sense of not taking responsibility. But he does love Rachel. So in this case, it actually does work. Um, okay, let me stop here and take some comments or questions, and then we'll continue with the story. Um, uh, yeah. Rabbi Silver, there's some interesting yeah. questions in the chat I'd like to highlight um, in uh, no particular order. Of From, I believe, Gail Bendeheim, and Gail, please correct me if I misread. Do you think the language of Tachat Elohim Anochi actually refers to the displacement of divine power, which echoes the various displacements we've been discussing? Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm not sure the word displacement exactly, but yeah, maybe displacement is not a bad word. What Yaakov, I think, is saying is, I can't do that which God does not wish to do. Hashem Monami, because Monami Mech is not just you don't have children, but God has prevented you from having children. If God wants to prevent something, the human being doesn't have the power to undo what God wants undone. That's what Yaakov seems to be saying. Now that expression, Hatachat Elohim Anochi, appears later in the Chumash. One of just about in, jo in Joseph's last speech in the book of Breshit, that's what Joseph says to his brothers. So obviously the, the, this expression, Hatachat Elohim, there's only, here it's Anochi. But the fact is, um, obviously the Chumash of Breshit thinks it's a rather important statement, given the fact that that's Joseph's last speech to his brothers. It will come, hopefully come to that someday. Yes, but I do think there's a sense of what God wants undone, I can't, I can't do. I'm powerless to do it. And he resents them. He's angry with her. What, what do you think? What, what do you blame me for? It's not my fault. That, that's what he seems to be saying. And no, it's not his fault. 
That's true. In fact, the default for the matriarch is not to have children right away, but it does suggest, as Rashi sees it, a lack of a sympathy, an unsympathetic response. That's how Rashi sees it. And later on, I think there's a lack of taking responsibility for her. He does take responsibility for her later in the Chomish. He sort of brings Rachel back into the family. One of Yaakov's, one of his sterling achievements. Yaakov builds the family at the end of the day. And it takes a lot of building because it's, it's torn apart in many ways. Much of that is his own fault. That doesn't matter. But that, that, will, that will take place later. What else do we have? What other, what other comments or questions? Um, I'm going to highlight one more from the chat, and then I also want to open it up to uh, the people. I guess people know, to speak for yourself. Um, from yes, from Neva Goldstein. Um, perhaps Yaakov's anger at Levan blinded him, similarly from taking responsibility for the missing trophim, and led to the rash vow that whoever took them should die. Uh, Neva, if I misread oh, that, please sure. jump in. Here it's explicit that Yaakov was angry. It's a place of anger, for sure. I mean, it's right. That could be so. But my point is, nonetheless, whoever took it should die is, look, here's, here's the point. The Chumash, I think, does not think well of that statement. And the reason I say that, we always try to see what the Chumash is thinking. That's, that's our job here. You know, what does it actually seem to be saying? Then we can ask a second question. How do I respond to that? How has that tradition responded to it? That's a, that's a good question, but our job is to first to figure out what the text seems to be saying, given the tools that we have. And of course, that story of Yaakov saying, whoever took it should die. And we'll get to this hopefully later if we keep learning together. So I hope we do. Um, there's a parallel story in the Chumash, a precise parallel story in the Chumash. The parallel story to Jacob leaving Aram after many years and Rachel taking with her an object that represents the culture of Aram, which happens to be the, the idols of her father, has a parallel later in the Torah, when the brothers leave Egypt, having gone down to Mitzrayim, having brought Benjamin to Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, Joseph places his magical goblet, one that he divines with, Nachesh Nachesh, is a Menachesh, and he places the goblet inside Benjamin's sack. And, and he sent someone to chase after the brothers. Why did you, why have you repaid good with evil? I've been so nice to you. And why do you steal this? Why do you steal from, from my master, the fellow says. And the brothers say, God forbid. How could you even accuse us of that? We even brought back the money we found in our sacks the first time. No, whoever took it should die. And we also will be slaves. That's interesting. Whoever took it should die and we also shall be slaves. And the man says, no, 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 no. The one who took it should be a slave and you can go free. And then Judah says to Joseph, uh, no, at the end of the day, first we'll all be slaves. And then Judah says, I'll be the slave instead. And there you have straight up, whoever took it should die, we're also guilty because we're part of a family because we're all one group, we came down together. And it's not just about the other guy. We all bear responsibility. And if that's true of the brothers, one might say it's a kavachomer, right? It's certainly true of the patriarch of the family. And there is one patriarch of the family. His name is Yaakov. Yes, one might say he hasn't been very much of a patriarch. 
of the 12 or 11, uh, 12 children born in exile, he named zero. So what kind of patriarch is he in the first place? Good question. But he is, in fact, the patriarch. So when he says whoever took it should die and takes no responsibility himself for it, it's part and parcel of the same thing that he says here. Honey, you got a problem. You deal. Not my problem. I got four kids. God has prevented you from having a child. Okay, so it's your problem. What do you want from me? He gets angry, no less. So that's the problem. I think there is, the Torah does fault him, actually. And I think he actually understands that and picks up with it later. And he, of course, he takes total responsibility and he actually builds a family. I mean, it's not so simple for him to do it. That's the greatness of the story. It's not simple, but he does it at the end of the day, sends Benjamin down. He educates Joseph in Egypt. He does all that, he brings Rachel back. But at this point, he's living in exile and not just living geographically in exile. His head is there. His head is in Lovin's house. That's the danger. Yeah, well, anybody else? Um, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I hear in Hatachat Elohim Anochi a little bit of an echo also of Bavel, uh, uh, Migdal Bavel, uh, in the sense of uh, whether it's Rachel or even Yaakov, uh, there is the, the uh, idea of uh, uh, being God or supplanting God. And likewise, uh, the, uh, the connected to the Nachash, uh, there's a difference between envy and jealousy. Uh, I've heard the difference to be uh, envy is you, 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 you're upset about what someone else has. Jealousy has to do with a uh, upset over a relationship. And uh, uh, I think there's both here. Um, Rachel is both envious and jealous, as was the Nachash of either God or man. And this is the winnowing out of Haran from Yaakov and his children. Right. I think that, look, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that um, in terms of the winnowing out, I think it's, it is a process. There's no question about it. But I mean, this is the first well, what I find very striking here is, as what I started with, which is, it takes him 20 years to express his anger at Levine. He probably was angry all along. He may have been. But he doesn't say a word for 20 years. But when it comes to Rachel, his wife, there he gets angry immediately, you know, pretty much very early on in their, in their marriage. How long have they been married? I mean, Ray has four children in very rapid succession, obviously. So, yeah, I think that the... What has to happen in the Chumash, and I think it does happen, is somehow for Yaakov to learn from this experience and to figure out how we can how we how we can eliminate, as you say, the envy and the jealousy, both from our relationships with the other human and, and to see ourselves in the world in terms of our responsibilities, how we relate to the divine, how we see our own place. And those stories do play out, of course, the Nachash, and you say Migdal Baba was a similar situation where human being wants to be God or even better than God. One might be right to control the heavens. And as we'll see, uh, we saw already with Yaakov in the Sulam, no, the heavens are God's heavens. And our job is here on earth and to, yeah, maybe to bring, to bring the sacred into this world, but we can't, we're not gonna go up to the heavens and build God's temple up in the heavens. Shemayim, Shemayim, Hashem. So I think that the larger point you make is central point, which is 
what the story actually is about is, is Jacob's transformation. So Yaakov becomes Israel. One can only appreciate the transformation if one understands where he starts out. Like basically, he was always this way. There's no transformation. But in the case of Yaakov, there is a trans. Having said there's a transformation, he does remain Jacob all along. Keeps the name Jacob, which is an important point. And we'll, we'll get back to these, this idea, I think, more than once, because it's pretty central point. Um, is there anybody else who wants to comment? I mean, then we'll pick up and continue. Yeah. Yeah, it, occur, it occurs to me that the that the um, that that the that the place where in spades the Bible makes clear um, its view about collective responsibility is the, is in Yehoshua with the story of Achan. That's that's certainly right. And and actually, in in it just occurs to me that in that story, it's very interesting um, um, that that one of the things that he steals is a deris shinar related right. related precisely. To, to man thinking of himself as God, the Tower of Bobville. For, for sure, that's a, that's a very important point. I've discussed that a lot in, in the past and that's very true. That is the story which is true in the, in the, in the Tanakh and it's true in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Gemara. What the Gemara says, we could spend, a, we have spent time in the past on this, we could spend more time, but the idea that when you cross over into the land, when you cross into the land, the, the whole Gemara in Sanhedrin, and the Gemara's understanding is that before you, you're in the land, the community is not responsible for things done secretly. The community didn't know about. When you do cross over into the land, the community becomes responsible according to one view, even for those things that, that they don't know. And the question is why? And presumably there are different ways to understand that. But one is, that's what it means to, to, be, to be community. Not that we are the cause of it in any sense, but we are part of that community. If we're part of it, that we have some kind of responsibility for, for what takes place in this world, even though we did not, not do it, we may even be, be victims of it. That, well, that's what's driving Heschel, actually. It's the main driver of Heschel. If you can pick up a main driver. What drives Heschel, coming out of a whole Hasidic tradition is, we didn't, uh, we, didn't, we didn't create the Holocaust. On the contrary, we are the prime victims of the Holocaust. Nonetheless, we are part of a world that actually did create it. And therefore, we have to think about that and try to make it a better world. It's actually what's driving it. And I think that's a very interesting insight. Um, so for sure, the story of Achan is the story which suggests that when you come into the land, when you have a full community, you have your place, as it were, that that creates all kinds of responsibilities and yes, Aderet Shinar is one of the points. There's a lot of interesting, uh, there's tons of interesting things in the story of Achan, but you're on, on target there. Okay, let me continue now with our story. Get back to, um, thank you for all those comments. Uh, let's just continue now. So Yaakov, fine. Now we have two children to, um, to, to Rachel has two surrogate children. I'll be Kai on my knee, right? Then it says, Now Leah sees, recognizes that she has stopped having children. What do you mean she sees it? I mean, she sees it in the context of that Rachel now has two surrogate children. And, there's, and the second one was named, she said, I have prevailed over my sister. So Rachel is the one who says, I'm in a, a contest with, with my sister. The contest, presumably, for the affections of, the, of their husband. Um, so now Leah, Feels she has to do something in this struggle. 
So she takes Zilpa her shifcha, and she gives her to Jacob as a wife. Bila bore a son for Jacob. Bila the shifcha of Leah, the maid of Leah, bore a son for Jacob. Leah said, God, God, if they translate as good luck or good fortune has come, God. I'll get back to this in a second. And she named him God. So she gives the name. And then next verse, and Leah has made Zilpa born a second son to Jacob. Here, Asher means joy or good fortune. Women will deem me fortunate, Asher. Women will praise me for what I did. And she named him Asher. Here is interesting, actually, a couple of interesting points about this little story. Clearly, it's a response to what Rachel did. First thing we notice, I think, is that unlike Bilha, the Torah doesn't mention the fact that she conceives and is pregnant. The Torah, in the case of Zilpah, it says she gave birth. It doesn't mention the pregnancy. She gave to Yaakov as a wife, and she gives birth both to the first and the second child. That's one interesting point. But the second thing is the name itself. Okay, God and Asher in this translation are very similar. But in terms of the first verse, there's something interesting about the way it's written. It's written bet gimel dalet. It's read as two words, ba God. Ba God, good fortune has come. But bet gimel dalet read as one word has a very different meaning. Ba God, live gold. What does live gold mean? What is begida? Treachery. Treachery, yes, treachery. Betrayal. Betrayal, betrayal. Now here's what's interesting. I mean, you remember that we encountered, and I'm teaching three different classes. I can never remember what I teach where, because they're all actually connected for whatever reason. But remember that we have the Haftorah of uh, Vayetze. The Haftorah of Vayetze, Haftorah of Toldov, I think it is actually, is from Malachi, the last of the small prophets, the last prophet, Malachi, my messenger. It begins with Yaakov and Esau. And I pointed out that not only does it begin with Yaakov and Esau, it starts by saying, forget Esau. Israel, Israel says, how have you loved me? From my afton, how do I love you? Listen, says God, Jacob and Esau were brothers, twins. I rejected Esau. I didn't, but, but I did love Jacob. And then the rest of the Yaftorah goes on to lambast Israel and Jacob. And it recalls the Parsha. It talks about deception talks about mistreating your father and deceiving your father and bringing inappropriate sacrifice to your father. Of course, the Haftorah, chosen by our rabbinic tradition many, many years ago, his understanding is bothered by or, 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 or uh, saying something about the so-called sacrificial meal, the, the food that enables Jacob to get the blessing but there's something not right with that meal, something deceptive about the meal. One might even say stolen. 
she took the clothing of Esau and dresses Jacob in the clothing. So the Aftorah is a critique of Yaakov and a call for, at the end of the Aftorah, Siftei Kohen Yishmeru Dat, Torah Yivakshim Mipiyu. Be'emetu b'mishar, he spoke, the priest should speak in truth and, and yashar, yashar being the opposite of, of a code. So that's the Haftorah. But what's interesting is, if you keep reading the book of Malachis, in, in, in the Jewish tradition, it's always three chapters, and the Christians have it as four chapters. But we have three chapters, it's a short book, very short book. It ends with a very famous verse, right? Many nice tunes for that. But that's how it ends. But in the middle of the book, there's another critique of Israel. The critique of Israel is very interesting. It is, if I can find that verse in Malachi, just take a look. Very end of Treosa, last one. Yeah, let's see. Um, let's see. For, here it says, it is found in Malachi chapter 2, verse number 10. Don't, don't we all have one father, means one God? Did that one God create us? Why then do we break faith with one another? Break faith, God. Why do we betray one another? We all have one father. Judah has has been treacherous. They've done wicked things. How so? Judah has profaned that which is holy to God and has espoused daughters of alien gods. So, right. a terrible thing shouldn't happen. And now, secondly, and you read a few more verses later, and, and, and it's just typical of Malachi. Malachi has the people asking God questions and God answering. So in verse number 14, you say, Amartem, Amer, what do we do wrong? God is the witness between you and your partner, your wife. Asha, the wife of your youth. Whom you have betrayed. It's one of the nicest things in the Bible about marriage. <laughs> Calls the, the wife of my youth. She is your friend and she is your covenantal partner. So that's a nice verse, actually, you know? Covenantal partner, friend, wife of my youth. And this is, and what have you done? You have betrayed her. And the next verse is the same thing. Be careful not to be treacherous. Don't act treacherously towards the bride of your youth. Did that one God make us all? Does God not seek but godly folk? Be careful with your life breath. Let no one break faith with the wife of his youth. Right? Lotiv Golden, it appears several times over here. 
And I was thinking about this actually, this, this, these verses, given the fact that the book starts with Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau, talks about mistreating the father. God sees God as the father of him. And I was thinking about exactly the, those, the two critiques of Israel, some connected to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, where, they, where the men took foreign wives. I don't remember if it says they got rid of their, of their, of their wives, the foreign wives instead or in addition. But I was thinking, not in terms of Ezra and Nehemiah, but in terms of Yaakov and Esau, that actually, Baal Bat El Nechar, living with, taking his wife, the daughter of the foreign god, is what Esau does. That's what disqualifies Esau from the covenant, because he marries the two Benot Chet. And they have, create bitterness for, for Yitzchak and for Rivka. Rebecca says, if Jacob will do this, why do I live? But to betray the wife of your youth. The question is, is that a description that fits Yaakov? But what's interesting is what Leah says and the way Yaakov treats Rachel in the story here. The Medrash picked it up. Treason. And she said treason. The fact that I have to give my shifcha to my husband, despite the fact that I have four children of my own, it's not the same as Rachel and not the same as Sarah. She has her own four kids. And yet I feel it necessary to do this because I'm engaged in a struggle. As my sister said, I'm engaged in the struggle. And why am I engaged in the struggle? Why should I be struggling? I got married. There was nobody else. When she marries, it's clear. From Leah's perspective, Jacob should have one, one wife. And that's me, because I'm the first one. We, the reader, know what there's a, there's, a, there's a background story to it. But as far as Leah is concerned, the father decides whom the daughter marries, and that's the end of the story. And that normally would have been the end of the story, except that he wants seven more years of labor from, from Jacob. It's not caring about either daughter, actually. So the fact of the matter is, well, God, there's a betrayal here. And as we've seen, the way he deals with Rachel is very problematic. Honey, you, you got a problem. What do, you want, what do you want from me? I got no problems. I'm, I'm good. You got a problem. Okay, your problem. You deal. Okay, Yaakov, then take my, okay, then I'll bring another woman in, in, into the marriage. That's the, uh, perhaps that's what Malach is getting at. It's a, we don't care about Esau, actually. Esau is not the point. The point is yeah, Israel. And the Navi's job is, is, is to critique. It's not to say nice things. That's not the Navi's job. If that were the Navi's job, you have a very easy life. Naviim have very difficult lives. Some of them get killed. They only have one job, which is to speak a brutal truth. And that's in point of fact, I believe the book of Malachi is about Yaakov, actually. So Asa and Yaakov. And there, of course, is the promise that one day the parents and the children will be reconciled. There'll be better, better days. In the future, Eliyoha Navi comes. And he, he, he augurs redemption, he brings redemption. But meanwhile, we have the struggles and nobody rep represents the struggles better than Yaakov. So I wonder about Bogad, Bet Gimodal, the Midrashim, of course, pick it up. It's interesting, 
We'll see this a little later. But let's continue now. We'll just pick, continue with the story. Um, and you see that basically, the translation, women will see me as fortunate, is one possibility. But there's another way to read it. can mean they say I'm fortunate, but they also praise me for what I've done. Um, we'll see this later on. It's not something that Leo wants to do. And there's no reason for her to have to do this. This is a last resort to bring another woman into the marriage, given the history of Sarah and Ishmael and Hagar. It's very dangerous, but she feels she has no choice. She's engaged in a struggle and a fight that was not a fight of her choosing. It has nothing to do with Leo. Zero. Uh, that's the first thing. But the struggle now can, meanwhile, Rachel doesn't have her own children yet. Now let's continue a bit here. And uh, now we have the next story. After which I will stop and take comments and questions. Ruben goes out at the time of the harvest of the grain harvest, the wheat harvest. And he finds Dudaim. Here they translate Dudaim as mandrakes. Some translate as jasmine. I think mandrakes is, is better. I think the consensus is mandrakes. He brings them to his mother. And Rachel says to Leah, give me some, please, the mandrakes of your son. So the mandrakes, presumably, in the Chumash and in, and, and in Western tradition, are a fertility uh, plant. They have a human form, actually. Ramban says they have a human form and they are um, a, 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 a fertility pill. And Ruvain brings them to his mother. That's actually very interesting that he brings them to his mother because it does say something perhaps about Ruvain, who was a, I would say, well-intentioned but dubious character in the book of Genesis. And one thing you got to know is when you don't get involved, when you don't get involved, you know, you have to know when you do get involved and when you, you don't get involved in issues that relate to your father and mother and to the other wife. It's not your business to get involved in that struggle. You stay out of that. So Ruvain brings the fertility pills to his mother. He's going to help his mother in the, in the ongoing struggle with, 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 with her sister. Um, he's going to get involved and he brings his mother this fertility pill. So Rachel says to Leah, Give me some of those fertility pills. I could use them, you know. She has none of her own children. We understand that. Now we have Leah's response. Something actually very interesting here in the story. So Leah says to Rachel in a very telling statement, Was it not enough that you took my husband? And you want to take the mandrakes of my son? It's interesting, she emphasizes the mandrakes of my son. What are you? In other words, it sounds like what she's saying is, I have a special relationship with, this is my son. It's not your son, it's my son. So what are you gonna move in on my son too? You already took my husband. And you see from her perspective, it's, she says it straight up. I was married to Yaakov. And a little short while later, there you are. Well, what is this? It's my husband. And, and not only that, he loves you more than he loves me. You took him away from me. 
And they wanted to, now my son brings me something, my beloved son's trying to help me out. You're going to inter, inter, interfere in that relationship too? It's not a sexual relationship, but it's a deep relationship. Mother, son. Well, what is this? So Rachel says to Leah, okay, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So let me say two things about this verse. It's a funny thing, you know, in the parasha Rashi, of course, the great, the great lover of the Jewish people, I would say, and also the great apologist, the, Rashi puts a gloss on the whole parasha. They're all trying to build the, 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 the holy tribes, they want to be part of this holy community, create all that business, which all may be true. The fact of the matter is, the parasha is a brutal parasha from top to bottom. But on the other hand, there's something nice about it, which is this, I'll get to that. First of all, let's, let's get to the part that's not so nice, which is you're living in the house of Lavan. Everything is for sale, everything. So let's, they're gonna make a trade. No one has discussed this with Yaakov and Stan. They're trading the rights to Yaakov. Okay, listen, I want the fertility pills. I'll tell you what, you can sleep with him tonight. It was my turn, so you, you can have him tonight in return for the mandrakes. It's a sale. I'll buy the mandrakes. What are you going to pay me? So you sleep with him. Fun. So that is, I would say, has to be a negative. And the next verse is striking. And Yaakov comes back from the field at night. That reminds us of the, of the story of Esau. Now we have Yaakov coming back, coming back from the field at night. went out to greet him. But Tomer Elaitovo, you come to me, she says. I have, I have, I have, I have rented you out for the night. Rent a husband. Takes us back to what Lovin said to Yaakov. Because we're relatives, you should work for nothing. What are your wages? Who said work? Who mentioned work? I'm living in your house. I'm your nephew. Why should I work? It's all about work. It's all about what I can take from you. It's all about everybody's a commodity. Everybody's, everybody's a price. Come to me tonight. I have rented you out. So Jacob slept with her that night. He doesn't, Yaakov says nothing, by the way. It's so striking. He says nothing at all. He could say, whoa, one second. What do you mean? I wasn't consulted. He could say many things. We don't rent people. He says nothing. And um, this is, of course, the danger of love, of this culture. On the other hand, Sometimes one guy once said to me after one measure, can you say anything nice? So I'll say something nice. I said, look, I didn't write the book. I'm just trying to understand it. But I will say something nice about this, which is that unlike the men who fight with each other, who try to slit each other's throats, the women find a way to work it out. Let's put it that way. Okay, they are in deep competition, but they do find a way to, between themselves, to work things out. That's probably what the Midrashim about, the, about Leah and Rachel, that Rachel goes along with it and all that business. It's picking up, of course, it's not in the text at all, but it is picking up on something. And what it's picking up on is here you have a real conflict, a real deep conflict. And Leah said it about as clearly as one can be. You moved in on my husband. By, by, she means like this. He loves you more than he loves me. I'm the mother of his children. We have reached equilibrium. I have four more kids than you. Why upset the apple cart? 
It's very good right now. I'm mother of the kids. You're a beloved wife. You have two surrogate children. I got two. I'm still four ahead of you. And now you want to upset the apple cart? Let's leave things the way they are. Says Rachel, I need, I need kids. But you know what? You can still have more, four more than I will. So you have extra rights to him. So they're working it out. The women can work things out without, without bloodshed. The men have a more difficult time. And uh, yeah, right. So this is what happens. So God hears Leah. We'll have two more children. In other words, not just that night. It's an ongoing thing. Mandrakes for Jacob. It's a trade that goes on for quite a while. So I guess they run out of mandrakes. This is actually a very interesting verse. It's not what we expected to see. Leah says, God has repaid me, given me my reward, in that I gave my servant, her servant is Zilpah, to my husband. And she named him Yisachar. Yisachar can be read with two sins. We read it as typically one sin. Some read it sometimes as two. It should be Yisachar. But Yisachar can be read as two words, Yesh Sachar. Yesh Sachar, there is a reward. Yesh Sachar. But the reward is not what we expected because she said to Jacob, I have rented you for the night. Sachar Sacharticha, I've rented you out, not just this night. We have an ongoing agreement, by the way, Yaakov. Every so often, I'm going to tell you when to come to me because we have, because we, we worked it all out. It's all worked out. Yesh Sachar. But interestingly, she doesn't mention what she said to Yaakov about Rachel, she says something else. I gave my servant, my Zilpa, to my husband. Maybe there's an implication here that she sees it. She doesn't want to say Rachel, but it's implied that I've been very nice in allowing other women access to my husband. But you do see from this, it confirms what I said before, that the giving of Zilpa to Yaakov is something that basically Leah doesn't want to do. She doesn't want to do it. Maybe that's why it doesn't say that Zilpah gets pregnant. She is pregnant, obviously, but it only emphasizes the birth. Because unlike in the case of Bilah, Rachel was willing to have Bilah fully, to have Bilah have a child, as long as it's her child as well. I also will have a child. But the case of Leah, it's not about that. It's something she's forced to do. She doesn't want to do it, but she's forced, given the circumstances, forced to do it. All that matters to her is that's going to be at the end of the day, Vatele. But the other one is just an instrument for her to do what is necessary and unfortunate. That's how Leah sees. So that's the first one, Yisachar, Yesh Sachar. By the way, that expression, Yesh Sachar, Yesh Sachar, where did we come across that, those words, Yesh Sachar, in the Bible? Does anybody remember where we have that expression, Yesh Sachar? Yesh Sachar lepeulecha? Yes, where is that from? That's true. Where is it from? Um, whom, do, whom is God speaking to when God says, Yesh Sachar, Repulatech, Omar Hashem? To whom is God speaking? Every person in, in this session has seen that verse without exception, I'll guarantee you. And if it registered or not, every person has seen it. Even for those that don't go to the synagogue, on this day you probably do go to the synagogue. 
It's the Haftorah of the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Who is God speaking to? Khan. Rachel. Rachel Mavaka Abanel. Miniko Echmi Bechi, right? Yesh Sachawa Puatecha Mara Hashem. Vishabu Banim with Buram. The song, Vishabu Banim. Shabu Banim with Buram. Yesh Sachawa Puatecha. Yahu uses the story, right? She refuses to, she keeps crying, she refuses, right? She refuses to give up. It's Yaakov, she's refusing to give up. So the Yemiyo transposes it to, to Rachel, actually, and uses the story for, for Rachel. That's son number five. Son number six, now Leah has another child. Difficult, very difficult verse. A word that appears only here and no other place in the Bible. The question is what this means. There's a mystery. So the Ramban, there's a Ramban here talks about this puzzle. You see the, the genius of the Ramban is mind-boggling. And, Rabban makes the claim, Zevet. What is a Zevet tov? The Safari community has something called Zevet Habat, actually. When a girl is born, they have a ceremony called Zevet Habat. What is Zevet? So the Ramban thinks the word Zevet, actually. He suggests that the word Zevet, he has two possibilities. But the Ramban thinks that the word Zevet is actually a two words. Zevad. Bad has several meanings in biblical Hebrew. One of them is a is a is a, a portion. Zebad, this is my portion. This is my portion. And of course, this is going to be this is half of Jacob's children, or half of the boys anyway. Hapam Yizbuleni Ishi, a zvul is a house. The temple is called a zvul. King Solomon said to God, I will build you a zvul, a house. This time my husband will, he they translate exalt me. I don't think it means that. Is Bulani Ishif in the words more? My husband will build me an abode, will build me a house. I'll be a permanent fixture, maybe a primary fixture. Where I've given birth to six, six sons. So once again, it's more than just I'm accepted, I'm equal. But here she says, I have a special place. I'll be the, I'll be the main member of the house because six children, six sons. Then she has a seventh child. This is a, a, a girl, and she named her Dina. No reason given for the name. We'll see later on. There are good reasons for the name. Right. So this is as far as the payment that Leah got for the mandrakes. And now we have Rachel will have a child. Let's start with this now. God remembered Rachel. And God heard her. Remember, she never addresses God directly, but God is hearing nonetheless. And now she names this child. And I'll just say one word about this and I'll stop and take comments or questions. So she says two things. Number one, God has taken away my shame or my embarrassment in the transit disgrace. She feels terrible. She does, has no children. 
And that was true of many cultures. And uh, can be true even nowadays, unfortunately. That's the first thing she says. The word Asaf Elohim et Cherpati, Atikra Shimo Yosef Beymar. And she named him Yosef. For she said, Yosef Hashem Li Bein Acher. God should give me another child. Now let's take one more verse and we'll pick up next week with this. The next verse is, Vayhi Acharei Yoda. We find the verse. Find the verse. Vayhi Kashe Yoda Rachelet Yosef. When Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Yaakov says to Lavan, send me away, let me go back to my own place. We'll start with this next week, but here's the important point for our purposes. First of all, first of all, as soon as Yosef is born, Yaakov wants to leave. And the way to understand that is from Yaakov's perspective, he went to get a wife. The purpose of getting a wife, solely the main purpose in terms of the covenant is that that child will be covenantal. Esau's children can't be covenantal. They're, the mothers are Canaanites. They're out of the question. For Yaakov, the woman he loved from the very beginning and wanted, he couldn't be, he's very clear. Rachel Bitraktana is Rachel. Now Rachel has a child. Okay. So from Yaakov's perspective, actually, what it suggests to us is mission fulfilled, mission accomplished, time to leave, because Rachel has her child. Time to leave means I, I, we, we are finished, mission accomplished. But this raises a set of questions that are very interesting, but here's one of them. He may think mission accomplished, but one person who doesn't think mission accomplished is his wife, Rachel. For she named his name Joseph, saying, Yosef Hashem li ben acher, God should give me another child. So we're waiting for another child. And how would this other child be produced? Are there any mandrakes left? We have no idea. Are there any other slave women to give to Jacob? No. So there's got to be some other way. But it sounds like from Yaakov's perspective, this is it. We have our family. We got our 12, actually. If you count Dina in there, we got 12. We're good to go. And uh, that's it. Half of them, or whatever it is. So, so this is the question. Yosef, now the additional point is to keep in mind for the future is something else very interesting. And that is that this is the one child, Joseph, for whom the Torah gives two different reasons for the names explicitly. One is from the word Asaf. Asaf, Elohim, and Cherpati. And the second is Yosef Hashem li ben acher. God should give me an additional child, Yosef. So it's the one child that we have two different names. And not only do we have two different names, but I would point out that the first name, Asaf Elohim et Cherpati, the name of God in the first name is Elohim. But the name, reason for the second name is Yosef Hashem, yud Vavei. So the question that we have as readers of the Chumash is a simple one. Is there a significance to the fact that there are two different reasons given for Joseph's name? And in addition, we wonder whether these two different reasons relate to two different names of God. 
Don't have to answer the question now. The first step is to ask the question. And I'll just conclude. Sometimes you hear people saying the question is more important than the answer. That is obviously utter and total nonsense. How could that possible? But we can say something else. You never get to the answer without the questions. <laughs> without the questions, we have no answers. So these are good questions, actually. And they will hopefully help us think about this and hopefully come up with some interesting ideas. In any event, Yaakov's ready to leave. As we all know, he doesn't leave. He stays for six more years. That will be the next topic. But we are still in the middle of, and more comments, thinking about Jacob's family, Jacob's children. Okay, I'll stop here. If anybody has comments or questions, we have a couple of minutes. And let's see what's here. Um, I wanted to ask if uh, Leah has more children and is not interested in having this competition, then it can be a one-sided competition from Rachel. Why does she feel that she has to give uh, Bilha? Zilpa, you mean? Zilpa, fine. Well, if that bothers her so much, why do it? We often do things that bother us. Well, she feels a need to do it. It's hard to get in someone else's head. But obviously, Rachel has just said, I'm in a struggle with my sister and I have prevailed. I'm in a struggle with my sister. If she feels she's in a struggle with her sister, then Leah presumably feels that Rachel's in a struggle with me. Yes, of course, you can walk away from, you can walk away from things sometimes. But walking away from conflict when the other person is, you know, sees themselves as your enemy is a wonderful thing to do, but human beings have a difficult time simply walking away when we're engaged in a, in a real struggle. And frankly, what's clear is that from what she said explicitly, that she feels she has been betrayed by somebody, either by her father, but it seems that primarily by her, by her, by her husband. Right. And that Rachel is brought into this marriage you know, and it's not Rachel's fault, as it were. And that's what's interesting. I mean, you can blame Lavan here. But outside of Lavan, I would say it's nobody's fault. That's what's great about the story. We have our loves. We have our desires. Yaakov loves Rachel. He, the first time, as soon as he saw her, he, he's, in, he's in love with her. Whatever that means. I mean, one can question what does love mean, given his behavior in these two episodes. What kind of love is it? But, the, but that's a good question. But um, it's not people's fault necessarily. That's my point. It's just that she finds herself in this situation, which is very difficult, and she describes it in very harsh terms. I mean, the Torah says, Snua, Ra Hashem be on ye, is a very powerful word. On ye is one of the covenantal terms. It means abuse and suffering. But God sees uh, the Jews in Egypt. Ra Hashem be on yam. Yeah. It's a powerful word. So these, you know, these kinds of relationships are the most fraught, they're the most emotional, they're the deepest, it's the most vulnerability. I mean, you're, you know, as the Torah says, you become one person. And that is, you know, you you're exposed to all kinds of things, and you mean it's not just you see somebody, you know, you can. We can compartmentalize with other relationships. I go to work. I got a boss. I don't like him. Eight hours a day. I go home and goodbye. Who was he? Never heard of him. You know what I mean? At work, you deal. But when someone's with you all the time, you know, and not the mother of your children, the father of your children, it's a very different, and that's, that's, that's 
totally different. And that's, you know, comes with a lot of, you know, it's, it's very, very complicated. There's a reason that the prophets saw husband-wife relationship as emblematic of relationship to God. It's very complex. It makes all kinds of demands upon us. And uh, no, it just seems, I mean, she's bringing in yet another woman. It just can complicate she it. She has even. no choice. That's the answer. She feels no choice. If you are a therapist, you would tell her you have a choice, right. <laughs> but you're not a therapist. You know, <laughs> really, right. she feels she has no choice. She makes it clear. It's, I, I don't want to do it. But what choice do I have? Right. But it can't be more explicit. Black and white. But her name, but her naming Yisachar Yisachar, seems to indicate that on the contrary, she feels she feels now that she's being given evidence that God is okay with her decision to have done that. Not that she felt she had no choice; she felt she had a choice. Well, God may have been okay. Look, people do all kinds of things. People make heroic sacrifices. Put it this way, it's a sacrifice I would say that she shouldn't have to make. Given the situation, again, the, the, the Midrashim talked with this, with this idea of having 12 children, which is found in the Chumash. So maybe there's something to that, that the covenantal family has to have 12 sons or something like that. That's possible. But short of that, I would say it's something that she feels she has to do. And she feels that she now she's, she's not unhappy with the child. She's happy with the child. But, you know, if it had been different, it would have been a very different story. It's not a different story. It's a story in which she is, she and Rachel as well, both of them are, one might say, victims of a, a father who, who uses them for his own purposes. Given, the, given, given that reality of life, the question is how you, how you best deal with it. And I will say that these two women do have, can at least work something out between themselves, which is better than the men. The men, Esau says, I'll, I'll kill my brother. The brothers plan to kill Yosef. Cain kills Hevel. At least the women have a different way to handle it, which seems to work out at the end of the day. Uh, we do reach a kind of a equilibrium. But I think you'll see in the, in the, as we move through Sefer Breshit, at the end of the day, uh, just to make this last comment, at the end of the day, we think about the mother of Israel. If you had to pick one woman, we, we have both. But at the end of the day, if you had to choose one or the other, it's got to be Leah, given the fact that both the kingship and the priesthood come, come from Leah. David HaMelech and, and, uh, and Moshe Rabbeinu, they're coming from Leah, who's buried with Yaakov. Now, it's equally true that the most talented and necessary son is Joseph, and that Yaakov sees, and the Chumash makes it clear, B'nai Rachel Eshet Yaakov Yosefu Binyamin. If you ask Jacob, who's your wife? Tell me who's your wife, Rachel. That's clear, clear. Having said that, having said that, Yaakov was able at the end of his, the book to make a very clear-headed, one might say cold-blooded decision about where these kids are and, and what their role is. So I say Yaakov works it all out for himself, but there's something about Rachel, tragic figure, dies very young, but that's Yaakov's great love. There's no question about that but we have to deal with reality. And that the reality is he's married to both of them. All right, I'll stop here at this point. Oh, again, tonight's lecture is at seven. I made a mistake, I said 12. Seven o'clock tonight, it's what I highly recommend. The Dr. Svi Novik is very interesting from Notre Dame. And um, should be an interesting topic. Uh, yes, uh, Kayla, you have other announcements to make? Nope, just please, 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 people are welcome to join us tonight at 
People are welcome to join us tonight at seven for the um, Renee and Alexander Bohm lecture um, with Svinovec. It looks to be interesting. And do check out the remainder of our Winters Mon programming. We have classes starting this Wednesday. We have classes starting after Thanksgiving. And on Shemitah and the Mishnah, on Heschel, on Covenantal Commandment with Rabbi Silber and with a host of other guest lectures. Do check out our class pages and see if there's anything you like.